Well, I will tell you this. You cannot block everything. That is that is a 100% impossible task to do. And the reason why is because fishing attempts have gotten better and better and better every year. You are listening to the Mindful Business Security Show, brought to you by Focivity where we answer your questions and simplify information security for small businesses. Get the clarity you need to focus on the things that matter. Well, hey there. You're listening to the Mindful Business Security Show. I'm your host, Accidental CISO. Welcome back. It's been a minute. We took a break from the show for the last two months for some travel and some much-needed rest. Now that we're back, I'm glad you're listening. As usual, this episode should be loaded with great questions, discussion, and information to help you protect your business. I'd hate to have you miss a future episode, so please take a moment and subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app if you haven't already. Today, we're going to dive into email and email security in a small business setting. It's another important topic, so please share this episode with anyone that you think would benefit from the conversation and answers to our callers' questions. My guest host today is currently working as a solutions architect. In the past, he has specialized in post-incident repair and restoration, where he's helped companies pick up the pieces after a security incident. The excitement and adrenaline of that work has led him to being called a ransomware restore masochist. When he isn't working, he's an avid car builder and is in the middle of a Mini Cooper S autocross build right now. I'm excited to welcome you to the show today, Craig Jones. Welcome. Good afternoon. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you for being here. This is great. So autocross sounds like a lot of fun, and I bet the Cooper S would be an amazingly fun little car to race. How long have you been building and racing cars? I'd probably say probably about 20, 25 years. I've been doing it, I've been doing it quite a while. Oh now. wow. So this is not a new hobby. No, no, this is this is not a new hobby. This just happens to be a new project for me. Okay. Cool. What's do you have a favorite build that you've done? Uh, I say my favorite build was a 2003 Mitsubishi Evolution that I purchased and pretty much from day two just started tearing away at it and adding all the necessary things to make it go fast. But the best part about it is to make it not look like it could go fast. It just looked stock off the floor. Okay. So so these are these are cars that you can drive. Uh, on the road, not just the yeah. track. Okay. Oh yes, daily drivers as well as track beasts when you need them to be. I'd, I'd worry about doing surgery on my daily driver all the time, but <laughs> maybe that's me. <laughs> well, see, I'm not, not the best mechanic. <laughs> well, that's why you have like uh, in, in my case, I also have motorcycles, so I can always vary <laughs> what type of excitement I want for that particular weekend or that particular time period while one's being worked on. Okay, that makes sense. Are there are there any key skills or takeaways from racing and and working on the cars that have given you an edge in your uh, business and security career? Well, you just learn to be precise. You learn to also expect the unexpected, because at any moment you could be on the track, and you don't know as to whether there's going to be a rock in the road or maybe you might have something that just randomly or spontaneously disconnects itself. You could check every aspect of the car, every aspect of the bike, but there's always something that could go wrong. So you kind of have to keep your 
keep your mind open to that fact and know that, okay, I'm going to go in here thinking this is the plan that I'm going to have, but that plan is going to definitely change. And you got to be ready to adapt and move in a different direction or pivot down a different road. Yeah, that's a great lesson for that. So our, our topic today is email security. And obviously email is a ubiquitous tool that's been around for a very long time now. It continues to be this weak spot for security and businesses everywhere. Uh, you know, this isn't isolated just to small businesses. I mean, large enterprises struggle with this too, obviously. Uh, but why do you think this is? What is about email that makes it so hard to secure and so effective for cyber criminals to continue to use against us? Because everybody receives tons of email. Everybody has a habit of signing up for something one way or another. And that goes back primarily, I would probably say about 70 to 80% of the people that sign up for newsletters or sign up for advertisements, they do it through their work email. Why? Because they're at their work 40 hours a week. Not everyone is disciplined enough to say, you know what, I'm going to only use my personal email for this and then go about with what they're signing up for. They use their work email because one, it's convenient. Two, they think, oh, well, it's just work email. You know, if something comes to it, somebody can block it and, and continue on. Not thinking that, hey, if I open this email or I open this file, not checking to see who it's from, it has something laced to it. And next thing you know, we've now got ourselves an event. So are there mistakes as, as you've worked with your, your clients uh, over time? Uh, are there mistakes that you see organizations kind of continually make over and over and over again uh, when it comes to designing or operating or securing their email systems that uh, you know, play into this? Oh, yeah. I, a lot of organizations play kick the can. We need to update our, our email system. Uh, that's going to be such a big task. Let's see how long we can hold out on it until it's really time for us to do it. I can't say how many times I've run into email systems where they have never been patched because it's an ordeal. Well, we're worried that the email system may not come back up. Why are you worried about that? Well, it's on a piece of hardware that's not the best. And well, we haven't gone and invested in our infrastructure. Instead, we just kept buying newer and newer laptops and not buying newer and newer servers to make sure that we could continue working at a non-vulnerable place. So I would say a lot of it has to do with companies kicking the can, not putting forth the understanding that they have to put in that extra effort to make sure that things are secure. And you mentioned patching with email and as critical a role as it takes in just general business processes across organizations. Something I've seen with it, and I'm curious if you've seen the same thing, is because it's such an integral part of the organization, like downtime is kind of hard to get for the IT teams. And I know that's something I have struggled with in the past when we've, when we've run our email systems internally, was getting agreement from leadership for when we're actually going to potentially you know, take the system down or, or do some risky things to patch and change the system, you know, and there's kind of a aversion to risk that uh, senior leadership sometimes has when you put in that, that 
change requests that they're like, ah, you know, we're just, there's, there's too much going on right now. We don't, we don't want to risk downtime with, with email. So let's, you know, you know, like you said, kick the can down the road on the patch. And then, you know, to me, at least the longer you do that, now the, the, the more patches you have to apply at once to get back up to current and the farther you deviate potentially from the tested set of patches that the, the software publisher has released. If that, you know, Microsoft, for instance, like they test upgrades from the current latest version to the next release, and they might test a few back, but I don't know that they necessarily test every possible permutation of well, version no, to can't. version upgrades. And so it can get risky the longer you wait as well, which I think feeds into it. Have you have you seen struggles with that, with leadership, uh, you know, not wanting to patch because of just the uncertainty of like, what if this doesn't come back up? I've seen that in some places where they're 24-7. So then you ask them, it's like, well, when are you ever patching your systems or what are you doing to make sure that you're staying out of a vulnerable state? Well, we have one hour every weekend that we can we can take care of. And I'm in my mind, there's not a patch alive that doesn't need more than an hour for testing purposes. But when you're a 24-hour shop, you you technically have to have two pro, uh, two product production environments when you think about it, and they have to run in parallel. That way, you can take one down, and all of the calls go here for a couple hours, and then vice versa. But with you're only if you're only equipping yourself with one production environment and you can only take it down for an hour, you're pretty much putting yourself in harm's way. Yeah, and, and that maintenance is one of the reasons why for a long time I've recommended to a, a lot of folks, like just, just don't try to run your own email. Like most businesses, to me at least, don't have any business running email. It's not their core competency, like let Google or Microsoft do that for you or you know one of these providers that like that's their core competency on that, at least in the small business space. Now, obviously you scale up to larger corporations and, you know, there, there can be some appropriate times there, obviously, but for, for most small businesses, at least these, these days, uh, you know, just taking that operational overhead of, of patching and monitoring and just that care and feeding of those systems off of their plate completely and paying somebody who has a team of experts that that's just all they do 24 seven. Well, yeah, it's generally the, the best approach. I mean, it's always good if you can have someone come in and put a solution in place for you, spec it out, configure it, test it with a few machines that you have to make sure that it fits your operational standards, and then go about your business versus trying to facilitate a resource to it that may have time some weeks versus other weeks. You'll never get it done. So, and this this last question that I've got for you here before we move on to to callers is is one that I, I like to ask every week because I like everybody's perspectives on this uh, or every episode I should say. Uh, if you could wave a magic wand, uh, you know what's like one thing that you would want every small business owner or leader to just magically know or understand about information security. I would have to say I would want them to understand flexibility, that security can be flexible when it's configured properly. It can be adaptable when it's configured properly. 
it's not always about staying within these strict lines because that's not how security works. Security is a blanket and a blanket doesn't take one shape. It takes many shapes. Yeah, I like that. I like that a lot. That's a, a different way of articulating that uh, than I ever would have come up with. But I I really like that. You know, it's flexibility is is one of the huge things, especially in small businesses that I love about security. Right. Because the small businesses have tend to have a lot more flexibility than large organizations. Um, right. They don't have as much budget, but they have a lot more flexibility. And so you can get very creative. Exactly. They have to be, they have to think outside of the box when it comes to their security and what they can implement and how they can implement it. Yep. And, and if you do it right and you get, get creative, you can do it in ways that, you know, it doesn't hinder and it doesn't feel strict and, and rigid, but it still is effective. So yeah, I love that. Uh, love that take. So, all right. Well, we've got some callers lined up today. Uh, you ready to go to the phones and uh, take some questions from the callers? Sure. Awesome. Let's go. Do the cybersecurity risks to your business have you confused? Visit Focivity.com slash podcast. That's F-O-C-I-V-I-T-Y dot com slash podcast. And sign up to be a caller on a future episode. Our first caller on the line today is Thinker from Berlin. Uh, welcome to the show, Thinker. Is is that Berlin as in like Germany or is that Berlin, you know, we've got Paris, Tennessee and that sort of thing. Are you you a small town in, in, in the States or are you actually calling for from Berlin and Germany? Hey, who knows? I could be calling from Sydney. Could be anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So how, how can we help you today? Well, uh, so since most businesses no, no longer run their own email servers in their office and their network, um, are built-in protections in cloud email for phishing effective, or do you find the need for an external t- tool uh, still to be used? I recommend both. There is a level of effectiveness that built-in tools have say Microsoft 365, but it requires the small business to have a resource that's willing to go in and go the extra mile and look into what can be configured. Out of the box, again, you're going to get the bare minimum. And there is so much more that can be done if you just take a few more minutes and start reading down that long path of Microsoft Learn documents. And you'll notice that there are things that you can add in, you can customize it. And that's what a lot of small businesses don't necessarily do. They'll get in and they'll find out, oh, well, I just need to set it up like this because these are the default values and that should be enough. And that's never enough nowadays because, again, threat actors are getting much, much more clever, more creative with their phishing attempts. And once you've gotten that portion done, look into something like Barracuda maybe Mimecast if you have the budget. If you don't have the budget, then I would definitely start to look into ways of making your built-in tools work extremely better for you. And that may be a matter of going in and saying, okay, I just I need to have a, a particular stance. In my world, we use a lot of NIST and DISA guidelines and regulations. And you can actually access those controls for free 
from the CIS benchmarks, and you can run that same type of information into your built-in tools to make you a bit more secure. And that will give you a lot more leeway and a lot more comfort when it comes to what's coming in. Sounds like a good idea. Those are great thoughts uh, on that, Craig. I uh, wholeheartedly agree uh, on on uh, you know sort of the prioritization and and you mentioned budget and existing tools like maximizing the existing tools that you already have is you know always the first thing that that I recommend if if organizations have built-in stuff through Google or Microsoft or something making sure that that's configured and dialed in as well as possible before spending extra money, you know, is a good, good thing to do. And then, you know, prioritizing from there, whether, you know, you've got other uh, more pressing issues that you want to put the budget towards, or then, you know, coming back through adding uh, add-on services. And one of the things that I, I like about the third-party services, layering those on top is they could dovetail, some of them can dovetail into your uh, awareness training uh, as well, so you can combine these these other phishing uh, protection tools with your awareness training, and they can integrate there by presenting uh, users with additional information, allowing them to report uh, that stuff easily, and being able to to track uh, those reports and things easily as well. That sounds sounds good. I mean, that, it definitely sounds like a good way to go. Um, also, in the same vein, I know that a lot of uh, companies will do phishing awareness training with their employees. Um, do you think that phishing awareness training is effective without also conducting tests? Well, like anything, I think pop quizzes are always the best way of measuring how much employees or you end users, for that matter, pay attention. So if they are, quote unquote, saying they're taking the training, they're paying attention, you got to have a way of testing to make sure that they actually are. You can give someone all the information in the world and they can sign off and say, yeah, I read that. But all it takes is that one attempt where they get flagged because they really didn't read it. They just signed it so they could get around whatever rule or whatever checkboxes that needed to be checked was done. So I don't think you can be as effective without conducting those tests. Those tests are are there for a reason. And it gives you more of a baseline of where your audience is. Are your end users really taking heed to what you're telling them? And if they're not, then you have to find a more creative way of reaching them so they understand what it is that you're trying to protect them from. Yeah, that, that baseline is is the key thing there. Because what you're testing with the phishing testing, at least to me, is how well your training is working. So I wouldn't, if I don't already have phishing training in place, I wouldn't try to do phishing tests because you've got no training to be even baselining at that point. And so, uh, you know, the, the phishing tests year over year can tell you how effectively your training is working and whether any improvements you're making your training are, you know, working well. And so I look at it as, you know, it, what am I testing with the, the phishing test? What I want to be testing or what I feel like I'm testing is, are my users noticing it and reporting it the way that they're supposed to? Not are they clicking on it? Because 
my my goal with a phishing test isn't to trick my user. My goal with my phishing test is to to measure the, the improvement that's happening, and the improvement is that active thing that I have done with training of my of my people because. We all know we can trick somebody with a well-crafted email, so that's you know not really the the, the valid test there. So yeah, and that that baseline though that Craig mentioned is is so important because you you do your training, you establish a baseline, and then improve your training based on the feedback from that you know baseline scores, and then the next year you provide the new training or or the next month or whatever provide the new training, run another test. Did you improve? And you know, right. that's a, a far more healthy way to look at it than than what I see. I, I see some folks in the industry that get very excited about, you know, oh, I did this phishing test and it was really devious and we got all these people. And it's just like, yeah, this isn't how we make friends is security. This is the fact that they get excited about that is it's like, why would you be excited about the fact that you were able to trick your employees or your end users? That just means that you're not providing them. Yeah, we want them to trust us. We want them to come to us and not be afraid to report things. And and if we're taking the the stance of like oh, we're going to zing them with this one, that uh, undermines everything that we want to try to do in security. So yeah, absolutely, training is effective even without testing. And the the testing is just another way to layer in to boost your training and benchmark your training. Yeah, does that is that helpful? Absolutely. Very good. Thank you, Thinker. I appreciate you coming on the show and asking questions. Oh, of course. Our next caller today is Chris from New London. Chris, welcome to the show. Uh, how can we help you today? Hi, C. Hi, Craig. Um, so my question is about phishing. So my uh, organization's recently implemented a phishing reporting feature in email. And digging into some of that data shows a majority of the really nasty stuff, like the credential harvesting uh, phishing comes from Gmail. And uh, furthermore, the phishing messages from Gmail outnumber legitimate messages to a, a ratio of about 10 to 1. And I'm just wondering how uh, I can manage that with my um, you know, email security gateway to try to reduce the amount of phishing that's coming into our, our users' inboxes? Well, two things that can go on when it comes to that. One, what type of security gateway are you using? Two, have you done a report on the amount of emails that are coming in from Gmail that are Gmail that's legitimate for your business? Because from there, you can actually go in and you can whitelist those emails and you can start to use that as a way of saying, okay, I'm going to create this bubble, so to speak, where the only thing Gmail can send me is if it comes from these particular email addresses. And that's kind of, it. it's a way of going about it. So you can at least take a look at where your traffic's coming from, how much of your traffic is actually legitimate versus illegitimate. And even from there, if you have maybe five or six of those users that are sending through Gmail, there's a chance you may be able to just give them guest accounts that allow them to communicate with your users that way. Now, you said that you use an email security or yep. third-party security. We are using Mimecast. Okay, so you're using Mimecast. And Mimecast does have a, they do have a way of actually looking at your traffic and understanding where, understanding where you have 
a break between legitimate and non-legitimate emails. So there is an adaptive learning system that does come with Mimecast. And you should be able to go in and say, okay, I want to be, I want to be able to go in and say, these are the email addresses that I want to accept emails from. And then that's it. Sounds good. It sounds like I got some work to do. I, and I, I will, I will tell you this. Mimecast can be a bear. There's no if, ands, or buts about that. I have dealt with Mimecast long enough to know that they can definitely be a bear when it comes to that. And and this kind of thing can be a challenge too, especially in the small business space, uh, because some very, very small businesses, it's not uncommon for them to use Gmail or, or you know, Microsoft, Outlook.com, you know, free email, or, you know, even see some Yahoo and stuff still floating around uh, as well. And it's not super, super common anymore, but it, it happens where, you know, small business folks spin up and, you know, accountants, uh, you know, or, or, or small, like, you know, one or two person shops, you know, will will use these instead of paying Microsoft or Google for that hosting and uh, have had to have conversations with, with those folks uh, as well, because their question is, well, if these, these are free, why should I pay for email? And, you know, part of it is having their own domain lend some legitimacy to their presence online. Uh, but in addition to that, it gives them more control over <laughs> their their email and that sort of, sort of thing as well. And it's, it, it's trivial for somebody to go create a Gmail account that mimics somebody's name. You know, there's, there's a lot of John Smiths out there, you know, so, uh, you know, John Smith at, at gmail.com or, you know, uh, you know, John J Smith at gmail.com. Like they're two completely different accounts. They could have the same name displayed, but there's nothing to stop somebody from doing something malicious. And it's really hard for people to identify whether it's legitimate from you or from somebody else through Gmail. So, you know, I liked, uh, as we were uh, talking before, I like how you kind of refer to these as low quality domains, like a Gmail and Yahoo and stuff, because they work great for personal stuff. But for a business, they are kind of low quality because you don't have that recognizability. And we tell people in phishing training, you know, look at the email address and make sure it's actually who they're coming from. But if they can't use the company's domain to help them try to legitimize, uh, you know, the the address that's coming in and the reply to address, uh, you know, that it, it, it makes it that much harder. So I, I definitely think that, uh, you know, there's, there's also room uh, for, for small business folks to, to, to do those to help in some of these situations so that you don't have the problem like you have where people don't want to block Gmail because we have legitimate need for it because some customer is using it. If that customer were using their own domain, this wouldn't be a problem and we wouldn't have to worry about whitelisting them in the first place or, or worry about those false positives. And uh, the, the false positives just are, are one of the big areas. It's it's where I've had lots of pushback in a lot of security areas uh, actually with blocking things is, you know, whether it's email or, uh, you know, phone calls and, and text messages or software or, or anything like false positives is always a, a concern. So as a follow-up question, you know, I'm thinking about what's the correct amount of phishing email that we actually want users to receive? Because, you know, if we block everything, then they never get the opportunity to report something as a phish. And if if we don't block things, then, you know, it's the risk of them actually 
getting compromised in a way that we don't want. So what's, what's the right amount? Well, I will tell you this. You cannot block everything. That is, that is a 100% impossible task to do. And the reason why is because phishing attempts have gotten better and better and better every year. They're able to bypass certain email filters because of the way that they are utilizing mails like Gmail, Yahoo, and even Outlook.com. But they're able to formulate their email in a way that it passes the filter as though it's a regular email. So I would say probably about 20 to 30% of your email at the most should be phishing. But you're probably going to fall in that 15 to 18% when it comes down to it. Because you'll catch, a, you know, the email filters will catch a lot. And then from there, you'll come into the Microsoft filter or the Gmail filter. That'll catch a bit more. And now you're you're down to the, about that 15 to 18%. Because it's possible to, to catch all of it. Yeah, that's a, a really good point. Like, you'll never get to zero on that. And I think a better, instead of focusing on what's the right amount of phishing messages to get in, I think I would flip it and look at false positive rates and determine like what's an acceptable number of false positives in a given like week or month or something uh, that support has to go and find that email and pull it out because somebody says, hey, I'm not getting this email that I was supposed to get. Like is one a month okay? Because that can be really disruptive to business with, with false positives. Right. So I think that's really the the metric that I'd want to focus on is like what what's acceptable from a false positives rate and get get your filters tuned based off of that because it's a more it, I think it's it's a more high fidelity positive signal to look at and then you know keep your filters adjusted to make sure that the false positive rate is within whatever you've established with the business leaders on that for what you're willing to do based on what it costs to go get those false positives and pull them out of the filter and put them back into site. Cause somebody has to do that. Like you, you, there's overhead with that support case with somebody not being able to do their job, having to call it, it has got to go do the thing, put the, the email back at the inbox of things and continue. And that can get pretty expensive. And so just how much time are you willing to to, to lose there? And so, uh, yeah, I'd, I'd focus on false positive rates more than I'd focus on uh, pure just how many phishing emails come through and, and tweak based on that. No, that's a really good point. I really appreciate that. Thanks. Well, I hope this was helpful for you and, and we were able to answer your questions. I appreciate you coming on the show, Chris. Yeah, thanks a lot. So, Craig, we've had a couple of good callers today with uh, questions for us and enjoyed the conversation. Uh, one of the things that that didn't come up that uh, I was hoping would come up in the questions is the, the topic of business email compromise, BEC. And it's, you know, one of the largest vectors right now for cyber attacks of uh, businesses, large and small out there is is. Uh, business compromise via email is that vector. Uh, what what are some things that, that organizations can be doing to at least reduce their risk of business email compromise? 
in addition to, you know, training and filtering and that kind of stuff? Well, the first thing that they can do is get the C-level suite on board to help the employees recognize that these emails will not come from them. You will never get an email that comes directly from a CEO or a CIO. It will always come in the form of a formal email from HR or to come in a formal email from the IT uh, support group, things of that nature. Very rarely do you see C-level users sending out emails for simple tasks. And that's where the education has to come into play. There has to be one email that goes out that states, this email will never come from a C-level executive, the CEO, CTO, or so forth. And if it does, it's going to come in a form of, again, a viable resource that you have received email from on a regular basis. So that's one way to help mitigate the BEC. Too often do you see people, especially newcomers that come in, they don't fully know the standards of the company yet. They've only been there two days, three days, maybe a week, and they get that first phishing email. Oh, I guess this is how this is how this company does it. Let me go ahead and click and, and do whatever it is that they're asking me. And that's the that's the worst thing. It should be first day, understand you're never gonna receive an email from this person. That in doubt would help mitigate a lot of what goes on. Yeah, and email in general, I think because it's been around for so long, like it that protocol, like as a technology originated at a time when we thought about security very differently. And the people who were building it, there was a, a certain amount of trust just in the network because it was only universities and it was, you know, only certain types of, of networks and users. And, you know, since then, as, as things have gone mainstream, it's changed with the, the protocols themselves underlying email largely are the same as they were back in the 1980s. Uh, you know, when, when some of this stuff came out, maybe even the 1970s, I'm not sure off the top of my head when email originated uh, as a, a protocol and as a, a thing. Uh, but that doesn't mean that there isn't anything folks can do. And so I, one of the things I wanted to, to point out for our listeners too is there are some things that you can do and that if you're not sure if your business is doing this, you know, ask your IT managed service provider, ask your internal IT folks just to confirm uh, there is uh, one thing uh, that's been introduced called a sender policy framework. Uh, we refer to it as SPF. You know, the, the propeller heads in the, the, the IT department refer to it as SPF, not the sunscreen. Uh, this is different. Uh, but effectively, all this is, it, it is adding a record to sort of the internet phone book for your company that other systems on the internet can look up. Uh, on the on the public internet, and that record provides a list of these are the email servers that are authorized to send email on behalf of our domain from our domain. And so, if you use Microsoft or Google, your SPF record 
will specify that Microsoft servers or Google servers are authorized to send email for your domain. And you can add uh, some additional information to tell other systems if it's coming from another server that's not one of the ones on the list, how to handle it. You know, whether you want it to uh, it to be blocked or whether you want it to, to be allowed to come on through or, you know, so there's something that can be done there. There is also uh, another one uh, that, that we call DKIM, D-K-I-M. And basically it's, and I forget exactly what all of them are, but it's, it's domain keys. So like cryptographic keys. And the email server, your company's email server, is able to use a certificate that proves its identity and proves the email is authentic and it signs every message. It's invisible to the users, but it, that message is signed as it leaves your email system. And that record, again, in that internet phone book can be looked up to tell other systems how to validate that that key was correct and that the signature is correct uh, and legitimate and be able to validate that that email came from a valid source of your email. So now we have two ways that can uh, combine. One is that the server is legitimate and the other is the email is signed, that it hasn't been tampered with, changed, and is also from that legitimate server. Uh, and then the third uh, thing that has, has been added is something called DMARC. Uh, and again, I don't remember what D-M-A-R-C, DMARC stands for off the top of my head. And shame on me, I should, I should know this. Uh, but I, I'm having trouble remembering it at the moment. But with DMARC, again, in your the internet phone book <laughs> that has information about your domain and where your website is and, and that sort of thing, there's this record that can be added to that that specifically then is allowed to tell other people. It sets this, this policy. It tells other people's servers that are configured to honor it. If it fails SPF check, if it fails DKIM check, what should I do? Should I reject it? Should I allow it through? And they can actually, you can actually get reports sent to you from their systems to tell you about emails that purportedly came from your domain that failed those checks as well to give you a little more insight into what's going on. So while it's difficult to secure email, there are things that can be done and some settings and things that can be configured uh, in your domain to help with this and to help other organizations validate the email that's coming from your system to help fight this. The problem is inbound spam into your, or inbound phishing into your system you can tell your system to honor those things and look for those things. But if those other systems don't configure those, you're not going to be able to, to validate their email. And so you're going to have to have more trust there, which potentially is going to drive up the amount of spam and phishing that can come from their domain. So these, these are techniques to help protect uh, people from being able to forge messages coming to look like they came from your business doesn't have a whole lot to do with stuff coming into your, your business is the important thing to keep in mind there. So um, wanted to throw that out there because we didn't really get an opportunity with the questions that came up today to talk about that, but like through the few technical things that uh, can be done other than pure like filtering and, you know, AI and some of these more advanced things to filter on inbound messages. So, so Craig, uh, 
you know, any any parting thoughts that you want to leave our our listeners with today as we're getting ready to sign off? Stay vigilant, stay informed, and always be prepared. And and before we jump as well, where can folks find you online in case they want to send you a message or follow up with something we've talked about? Uh, you can find me at the Bit Inside Group, and that is B I T. I-N-S-I-G-H-T group.com. We offer a multitude of actual services and we can come in and take care of your needs from A to Z. And we've talked in the past and I know that you're very skilled uh, at this kind of stuff. Bit Insight Group isn't a, a sponsor of the episode or, or anything like that. You know, I, I bring on guest hosts that I, I know and trust and are, uh, you know, experts in this field, but uh, yeah, if, if folks want to get a hold of you uh, through there and and talk to you about about what you offer, um, that would be amazing. Uh, and, and as always, uh, I want to give a huge thanks. Uh, actually, I should you know thank you, Craig, for coming on the show. This has been great having you on. I'm glad we could uh, get you back. I know you you called in as a caller on one of the very early episodes, and it's great to get you back as a, a guest host this time. My pleasure, sir. Yeah. And, and as always, I want to give a, a big thank you to the listeners. Um, you know, we're, we're doing this for you. And, you know, I, I just want to make sure that uh, everybody knows how much I appreciate uh, the downloads and, and folks listening. So it makes, makes it all worth it to, to see people downloading and listening uh, every week and every month. So I am Accidental CISO. And until next time, stay mindful. Don't miss our next episode. Be sure to subscribe in your favorite podcast app and follow us on social media. Visit Focivity.com slash podcast. That's F-O-C-I-V-I-T-Y dot com slash podcast for show information and links to our social media pages. This has been the Mindful Business Security Show brought to you by Focivity.